0: Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patient Talk Podcast, delivered to you by OmniHealth Insights. In this month's episode, recorded in partnership with UCLA Health, I'll be chatting with pediatric neurosurgeon Dr. Arya Fala, who practices at UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital and Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center, to learn about advancements in pediatric epilepsy surgery. Welcome, Dr. Fala. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Let's begin with the first question. It's a very broad question, but I want to start by asking who specifically is a candidate for pediatric epilepsy surgery at UCLA, and what specific options are there available for surgery?
1: So, epilepsy is a very common condition in children, and up to a third of patients don't respond to medications alone. Usually by the time a patient's failed their second medication, we know that further medication trials are not going to be effective in stopping their seizures. So those are the patients that are candidates for epilepsy surgery. There's a whole host and variety of surgeries that we do, ranging from removing small portions of the brain, causing epilepsy, to as large as removing an entire half of the brain, which is called a hemispherectomy procedure and kids that are having many, many seizures. There's also technology called neuromodulation, which doesn't involve removing the brain, but using electricity to modulate the brain and make it more difficult to have seizures. And these are implantable technologies, either in the neck or directly into the brain that can treat epilepsy.
0: Okay, so that's a really interesting one you just brought up, Neural modulation, I have written down. I saw your websites but children are often offered implantation of a latest generation of vagal nerve stimulators, responsive neurostimulation and deep brain stimulation. Are these treatments similar to neural modulation or are they different And can you possibly elaborate more on what these are?
1: Yes, of course. So these are all forms of neuromodulation. Essentially, neuromodulation means using any sort of electricity to modulate the brain activity. So The vagus nerve implant has actually been around the longest and it's the only one that's actually fda approved in children and that involves placing wires electrodes on the vagus nerve in the neck and we place a generator in the chest and use electricity and we program this then we work very closely with the neurologist optimize the settings and over time what this device can do is decrease the amount of seizures and make the seizures that patients are having less intense, again, less frequent. That's been around for a long time. There's deep brain stimulation, which you mentioned, and that involves putting the electrodes directly in the thalamus, which is a deep part of the brain that's very quickly associated with seizures and epilepsy. So the idea is by providing this direct stimulation to the deep parts of the brain, we can be a little bit more effective in lowering the seizure burden. The DBS technology is connected to an implant that also sits in the chest. This technology has been approved in adults, and we use it off label in children that have no other options in terms of treating their seizures. And then the latest technology is the responsive neural stimulation. So, other than the first two devices, RNS is actually a smart device. It has technology that actually is recording from the brain 24-7. What happens is over time, it actually learns the patient's individual seizures. And by monitoring the brain waves around the clock, as soon as it detects the start of a seizure, it triggers a response through that stimulator that stimulates that exact part of the brain and tries to stop that seizure from occurring or from extending and tries to abort it as soon as possible. So that device, although the electrodes sit directly in the brain or on the surface of the brain, the actual generator sits in the skull as opposed to the chest. So these are the three things that are available. I should also say that the responsive of neurostimulation is only FDA approved in adults as of now. So we do use it again off-label for certain children. Is
0: there a difference in comfort level between having an electrode inserted into the skull versus uh, the chest, for instance, or is it pretty much the same from a patient perspective? Also, in consideration of the fact that you know, these are children at the end of the day, how do I see these uh, different treatments?
1: Yeah, great question. And believe it or not, there are patients that don't mind any sort of brain surgery, but they ask you know, nothing to be implanted in their neck or chest and vice versa, where uh, there are some that Don't mind anything in their neck or chest, but they want to really avoid any implants in their head. In terms of the neurosurgeon's perspective, I mean, they're both very safe, effective, doesn't really matter too much, except I will say for certain patients that have very, very severe epilepsy where they can fall to the ground and shake really aggressively, we do worry about the longer electrode leads that go from the head all the way down to the chest, such as the DBS or even the VNS that starts from the neck because any sort of sudden movement or trauma can potentially damage the leads. So in that sense, the RNS technology, with the wires and everything being right there in the skull, makes it less likely that it could be damaged due to trauma.
0: You mentioned a, um, a smart device as well, a device that learns from seizures. Is there any elements or components of artificial intelligence in all of this, because it's smart and intelligent?
1: There's a lot of algorithms that are programmed into this device, sort of machine learning type algorithms where it can detect seizure happening and the device can report that information. Obviously, that information without the clinical context is not super meaningful. So we still need that human element to know whether that electricity that was abnormal in the brain did correlate to anything outwardly that the patient manifested. So we still need that information to come from patients or their families, and then really correlate both of them to figure out what that electricity that the device is sort of capturing or recording correlates to, and to put that all together to be able to best program this device.
0: And does this require any additional training or understanding or knowledge regarding big data, you know, presumably best data that needs to be interpreted?
1: A lot of that happens on the back end with the engineers and the company actually processes a lot of this data and then it gets summarized. And what essentially the neurologist looks at is an EEG, which is what they're comfortable looking at with examples of seizure. So for the actual clinician, you don't need too much training and big data or, or knowing exactly how machine learning and those things work. But a lot of that work is done on the back end with the uh, company.
0: What other new treatments or techniques is UCLA offering in how they uh, treat patients? Would you be able to elaborate more on what you're pioneering or planning in terms of treatments and techniques?
1: One of the other techniques that's relatively novel in epilepsy surgery is laser interstitial thermal therapy. We call it laser for short. But in the past, to treat anything in the brain, you would have to do an open surgery to get there. And sometimes... These spots can be in a really difficult area deep in the brain, in sort of high real estate areas in the brain. So, any sort of collateral damage could be very costly. But nowadays, with the use of laser technology, it allows us to pinpoint and target, especially deep, small areas in the brain, by putting a laser catheter directly into that area and then using heat energy under MRI visualization to essentially destroy that lesion or the spot in the brain that's generating the seizures. And we can do that without having to do a big incision on the head and what we call a craniotomy where we lift a part of the bone up to do the surgery. So nowadays that is definitely an option. It's not an option for every situation, but that is a good tool. And the newest thing we're sort of starting to learn about is technology called HIFU, high intensity focused ultrasound, where we have the ability to make lesions in the brain in a non-invasive fashion without having to even put a single skin incision and just from the outside. Right now, the technology is only approved for use in adults with functional disorders such as tremors, but there are groups that are looking into its role in epilepsy surgery.
0: That sounds really interesting and, uh, and quite uh, futuristic. And and very highly precise. And I guess on on, on that point, I came across a UCLA case study and a news story from 2017. So that's a while back already on the use of virtual reality in uh, treating patients with uh, neurological conditions. So I guess in in terms of surgery planning, VR was deployed. How far has VR progressed in surgery from your perspective?
1: Yeah, VR is increasingly important tool in surgery. And Surgery planning and education, I would say, because a lot of times, especially as a trainee, it's hard to sort of take a black and white MRI image that's 2D and really figure out what that looks like, 3D in the brain. For seasoned neurosurgeons that have been doing this for a long time, you kind of develop that ability. But especially early on, and especially in training, it's very useful to be able to take the 2D image sets that we have and turn them into 3D where it allows you to essentially practice or rehearse the operation or, or know exactly where the critical structures are and where you would encounter them during the surgery. So even though always every surgery is different and you're there for the first time, it doesn't feel like you're there for the first time because you've seen it all before in the same orientation that you, know, you have practiced and been able to see it. So for select cases, we find it very useful. You know, I think the technology is getting better and better and more realistic and more detailed over time that I think in future, I can definitely see that being an important part of the pre-surgical planning process for every patient.
0: In a way, similar to using lasers or laser techniques in, in surgery, are you deploying any robotics in surgery for added precision, for instance? I'm not an expert in a brain, but I suspect it's a, it's a very complex organ, which requires a lot of precision.
1: Yes, absolutely. So robotics is definitely entering the surgical space more and more in neurosurgery, the robots, uh, what they do, or the main robot that we use is for implantation of EEG electrodes, targeting very specific parts of the brain. And in the past, you would kind of use a, a frame where you put the patient's head in a frame and you get some coordinates and you dial it in and then you get your trajectory to specific locations in the brain. Nowadays, a lot of centers use robotic assistance in planning the trajectories, which adds a lot of precision, but also cuts down on surgical time in being able to do these procedures and makes it a little bit more safe than what we had before. The robots aren't actually doing the procedure, they're assisting. So what they do is there's a robotic arm that sort of positions itself exactly where you need it to get the right trajectory where you want to place one of these electrodes, but the actual surgeon's the one that's cutting the skin, drilling the holes and then placing the electrode. So that's happening more and more. There's also, you know, with the uh, laser procedure that I mentioned earlier, there's a role, there's a micro robotic driver that helps move the laser fiber millimeters forward or millimeters backwards to try to get us into that exact role, which is just a little bit more precise than what you can do manually.
0: Let's move away from technology and talk about the patients themselves, so the children. What kind of a uh, transformative effects do these uh, treatments have on, on the children themselves? I mean, how quickly do they re- recover? What does that quality of life look like as a consequence of
1: these treatments? I think pediatric epilepsy surgery or epilepsy surgery in general provides one of the most incredible life-altering Experiences for any person because you're you're talking about a patient and quite often in kids. These are children that have Multiple multiple seizures a day up to you know, let's say a hundred seizures a day So they have really no quality of life and these seizures take a toll on them Cognitively developmentally, so it's time is critical when you do these surgeries quite often You're taking a child that has these many seizures a day to curing them, right? They have none zero seizures so it is such an incredible area and you know within you know neurosurgery and, and even in medicine is very rarely that you can make such a big difference so quickly and right away right in patients lives so there is lots of data there's lots of studies showing incredible improvements in cognition development quality of life and then as these children get older Their ability to form relationships and friends and just reintegrate into society is really key. And the other thing that we don't talk about much is uncontrolled epilepsy has a risk of SUDEP. SUDEP stands for sudden unexpected death as a result of epilepsy. And that's an elevated risk per year when you have seizures. And that risk goes dramatically lower when you cure a child from their epilepsy. So tremendous potential there.
0: That sounds absolutely wonderful and amazing. So you described earlier some amazing technologies and how these are impacting patients' quality of life. What does the future look like? Are we seeing something that is defined to a certain degree by, gosh, you know, artificial intelligence again, data, maybe, you know, something remote? How does it look from your perspective?
1: You can look at it many different ways. I would say the most important aspect is actually epilepsy surgery is severely underutilized. So only 10% of patients that actually are eligible for it are getting this surgery. So I think there's a lot of work being done towards early recognition, early referral, and getting these effective, very effective treatments to these patients. So that I think will change in the future. So you don't have children seizing for many years before they go to a center that knows how to do these operations. But from a technology and neurosurgical advancement perspective, I I think our surgeries are becoming more precise, more minimally invasive, shorter recovery times, more effective, more safe. And we're using a lot more neuromodulation, which we talked about where we're not removing parts of the brain, but we're modulating the brain to behave a certain way. So I think we'll see more and more of that. The other front where we didn't talk about much is going to be the role of genetics and potentially gene modulation. And more and more we're finding associations between epilepsy and different genes. So the more that we test, the more we understand and potentially there's a role for targeting these genetic alterations, these genetic pathways to try to cure the epilepsy or alter the epilepsy without making any surgical incisions.
0: That's amazing. Thank you very much for that response and very insightful hearing about uh, genetics as well. and whether that might lead to the future of uh, treating patients for uh, epilepsy.